punching and kicking and biting and scrapping in their own way. But eventually what will pop out is uh, one of the techniques you showed them. I am Lee Sims and welcome to episode 2 of the Striking Thoughts podcast. Okay, so today's podcast is a conversation I had with my friend and instructor Mike Judd. Mike started training in Shotokan and now holds the fifth down with the British Combat Karate Federation and Applied Karate. When I started training in karate as a young boy, I was very fortunate to stumble across Mike's class and nearly 20 years later I'm very proud we have developed a fantastic friendship in and out of the dojo, and he was also my best man at my wedding last year. Mike came over to train with me recently, and after the class we grabbed a coffee and sat down to have a quick chat about all things martial arts. Mike gave some of his insight into his journey from the quote-unquote traditional karate to the more practical karate that he now trains in. We also discussed things like the student-teacher loyalty, teaching as a full-time job, and we also mentioned some of the martial artists who have influenced our training. Before we go into the conversation, I do have a few bits of news to share with you. A big thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast so far and provided feedback regarding the first episode. Um, due to the setup of the conversation for this episode, I think the audio quality is not as good and as crisp as it was previously, but do bear with me as I'm only a humble white belt beginner here in this podcast dojo. Secondly, don't forget there are still a few places left available for the Practical Karate Seminar with me and Ian Abernethy on the 25th of March this year, 2018, in Birmingham in the UK. I'll put a link to my website in the description of this episode. Finally, for those who have joined the newsletter on my website, you will shortly be getting an email from me with a link to the first book club review. All you'll need to do is click the link in the email and it will take you to an exclusive video where I will review a past or present martial art book that I think is a must read for pragmatic martial artists. If you haven't signed up yet, you still have time to do so before that first review video is sent out. Okay, that's all for the housekeeping section of this podcast. Okay, now I give you my conversation with Mike Judd. I want to say my first instructor, but actually you weren't. I went to a few party clubs before I met you. You're kidding. That this is a revelation, revelation right now. You're joking. Yeah, I am. Um, karate by Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I don't want. But we'll get on to loyalty in a second. <laughs> but yeah, my, my first main karate instructor who I turned up for more than two lessons with, I guess, would be would be you back in 1999. Still training under you, I guess, today, 20 years later. My first both started in Shotokan. If you, if you just want to talk about that, because we know your, your karate journey has changed. You're now a fifth dan under the um, BCA and BCKA. I just want to know what your training has changed like since since you met me essentially in 1999 up until now. And then maybe we can give some, some tips for people who are also going through a, a phase of changing from a traditional quote-unquote karate class to a more practical karate class. So if you just want to start with... Yeah. What your classes were like back then and what they're like now? In 1999, my classes would have been in the normal KKK style thing. The memories I have back from 
from my early days training with you, I remember I was, I was a nine, ten year old child in your class. Was there was Keon, there was Kata, there was Kumite. We did we did it on Kumite, and I think this is one of the things we got lucky with is we always had a free range of options when we had our Ippon Kumite. So we'd have a set lead punch kind of attack, but we were never restricted in what we could do to defend against that. And I think that was was a, was a door open in our minds where you could look at the catches you had and try and, try and apply them in the situations we were given. So whether it was against a body punch, a head punch or a front kick, I think we always had an option to try and use the kata, but obviously the, the circumstance we were trying to use the kata in at that point wasn't going to work brilliantly. You know, you'd still be trying to use like the cross blocks, the block punches or block kicks. But we still had that option in that, I, I guess, that artistic creativity to, yeah. to try and do what we could do. We didn't have set patterns. That, that, that's quite a big thing. Luckily, we have gotten rid of... We've gotten rid of it on Kimse now because it's, uh, it's, it's, we think we replaced it with a better system entirely. Mm. That's uh, you know we get that out of the way first. But in those days, in nineteen ninety nine, yes, we were doing a little bit of it on Kimse with no set patterns. So it's had its creativity. It's had a little bit of that. But even then, uh, doing it on Kimse, you sort of know intuitively that something's quite something was missing. There was a gap between cat and. Um, uh, uh, using a person to apply the kata and it, it can come say really wasn't uh, the best way forward no I mean even when we try to or you, or you try and do it and it, I remember going to a few you know high grade sessions where you would have um, four people around you and you'd, you'd be trying to apply the kata against you know karate attacks and I, I remember once we did it for um, MP kata you know, MP or Wenshu and I remember leaving the class feeling like I had the best session ever and this was awesome yeah, you don't know any better, do you? In the early days, you always believe the first person that, that told you something. And the instructor in them days, he, he was really, um, really good at fighting. You couldn't touch this guy. And uh, so everything he said, you believed full on. Even, even though now on reflection, I'd think back and go, no, you know, there, there are better methods than the punk mm. and, and even, I don't know if you remember, we mentioned a few moments ago, set patterns. The time I realized how prevalent they were in karate was actually was a course we did with Kanazawa, um, funnily enough, and we were all lined up. And then I, th- I think I think Kanazawa shouted something like sequence one mm. and the entire room, I don't know, it's been over 100 people in there, started this sequence, which we had. We had absolutely no idea what was going on. Yeah, we were dumbfounded. But he expected everyone to know what sequence one meant, and uh, well, unfortunately, we didn't. We were part of the skiff unit, and you know, we, we <laughs> it's well documented that they've got these uh, lots of sequences with numbers, and uh, and so that that was the, the initial kumite. But we also did free free sparring, free kumite, and one thing I realised even even back then there was a gap between the sparring we were doing in classes and um, the techniques in kata. I, you just you just couldn't use them during your sparring, and and it made me wonder why there was a, um, a huge gap. Yeah. A huge gap. I was wondering what what you thought about that, and whether you ever looked around or oh, had to think about that. Well, intuitively, you uh, I knew I'm, I'm clever enough to know that there was something wrong, but I wasn't clever enough to know exactly what. And it wasn't until I picked up a book by Ian, Ian's book on Bunkai Jutsu that um, it started to unravel itself to what the cat actually did and uh, that's when I started retraining uh, the 1999 version of me uh, was, was looking around for, for different ways of making this cat thing actually work 
Uh, and that book really opened up a whole new thing. I think it, I pretty much well rang up Ian and asked him for some seminar work straight away, to which uh, he replied affirmatively. We had a seminar with him not too long afterwards. So did you start bringing that into the, the mainstream class, into the organisation? Um, I'm just wondering, because there's going to be people out there, like like I said, who have who are going through this phase where they've, they've done this 3K style karate, and now they're trying to be a bit more practical and apply what they do you know, for the self-defense side of things, but they're going to be in a group where not many people are practicing or thinking that way. I mean, how did you bring that into your club? It was hard because um, there's, there's going to be people that you are training with um, that are going to disagree with your decision to train differently because there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Uh, and, and essentially it's not because if, if they're happy with what they're doing, then that's fine. So please go ahead and get on with it. It's nothing to do with, uh, with me and what I want to do. And I'll never say that so, um, even though I don't like Ipon Kunta and, and uh, I don't think it's I think there's better methods of, of uh, training the same thing uh, it doesn't mean that it's wrong for them I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them to do Ipon Kunta so uh, yeah I was with a group of people and uh, I was third in command of a federation and they let me produce my own soilus which was a really big thing for them because uh, we was all running off the same KKK syllabus and I come along and say you know actually I want to add these few things and drop those others and we must be careful here because we, we are going to upset some people there, there's, there, there was some friction at one point I remember one thing we used to do as well as we'd have a separate class um, on a Sunday mornings where we just do the applied bunkai kind of thing and we kind of tried to keep it out of our lessons as much as we could when we started um i can imagine there's lots of people out there who are doing that now can you remember the time when you realized you, you've got to implement this into your full class it was almost like i mean, I'm, I'm, i remember helping you teach that I, I was just so disheartened with the way we were doing things in the class the 3k kind of karate that i i realized my heart just wasn't in it and it was it, it became a, a real burden to teach that to people because i just didn't believe in it anymore when that happened with you and you got your own syllabus in place, what did your syllabus look like at that point? Well, we've just clarified something there about the three Ks. Is I still do a, a fair amount of key on. Uh, obviously, doing kata as a solo form. And with the kumite, it's changed from something like the uh, WKF style fighting to something that's more related to what the kata shows you. So there's nothing wrong with KKK. Still do quite a lot of it even now. But uh, um, to make it more practical, we've had to change the uh, the way we train rather than you know the subject itself. So do, do I remember the Sunday sessions? Was that the question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, sure. The, the way forward on this is to uh, just go to small groups. You know, you won't change everyone's. Um, you, you can't go up to a group of people and say, "Look, I think you've been uh, training incorrectly for the past thirty years." It, it, it's going to make you a really unpopular guy very quickly. So what you can do though is just separate yourself slightly with a few people because you don't you don't need loads of people to find out um, what you like to do in your applications. You just need a really good UK and you just need to go through stuff. And you probably find there's other people anyway that want to join you on that. And, uh, and eventually, when my syllabus took over my, my whole teachings, when I, um, I left. Uh, my uh, original federation, I, I joined the BCKA. And the reason for that was because they think that way anyway. It's, it's Ian and Peter, they, they, they think this way. So it's a natural place for, for me to do my karate. So you got your syllabus in place. Yes. You're, you're teaching that. Yes. Um, and you're training with 
other instructors now. Um, did you, did you ever see that was an issue that you had? Obviously, your instructors in your federation, and then your training on like seminars with Ian. No, for, um, for me, no. I, I think the associates should encourage you almost to go out there and listen. To them. One one really big thing that I got right early on, and it wasn't a decision I made, and that's to never restrict my students so that they can go out there and they can do what they want. And, and you are probably the best example of that. You're out there doing all kinds of things. Um, do you feel this law at any point? Um, I, I think when, I, and it's really strange, I think when, when I started, I remember I went to, um, and I think it's because it conflicted with your class once, I, I went to a class at my university <gasps> and I felt really bad about it. And I was, I just finished, I, I actually turned up to assist you with the juniors class and I left before the senior class started to get to a different class and I felt bad. Um, it was one of my first times I think I'd been to someone else's club, but I'd always asked you first. Oh yeah, well, yeah. I say I don't find that disloyal anyway. Um, the only thing I would find disloyal is if you. Um, no, I can't think of any situation where the, the sensei has complete control over the student. Uh, I really don't like that. I hear lots of stories about um, people being banned from classes because they did go to another f- uh, federation's competition or something. I think that's really, really... Mm. That's, no, me, me too. That's awful. I mean, I mean, the way I see it is if I can... And I, and I think if you look at, at the writings of Funakoshi, he had a similar thing with his, his instructors yeah. at Sato. They, they suffered no petty jealousy of each other. And, and they, they encouraged him to go off and train with exactly. whoever they could. Because for me, it's it, there's a, obviously there's a loyalty to my instructor, but, but there's a bigger goal of improving karate. And if I can go out somewhere else, find something which is useful to me and my instructor... I can then bring it back and help everybody else. And that's kind of how, I, how I've how i seen it when, when you've gone out and learned from other people and I've gone out and learned from other people is to make our karate better and eventually our students' karate better. And, and I think if you, like you said, I agree with you, if you just restrict that to you must only learn from me, then we've got a very, very narrow progression of what karate will turn into. Mm, indeed. I, and those that have gone out and come back again, they tell me all about it, and uh, I'm always interested in what they're doing. I, mean, we can't, I don't think we can speak for instructors who who don't allow this, but I, I do feel there's probably a bit of insecurity with them. I mean, I think one of the reasons why you never had an issue with me or any of your other students going off and leaning from somebody else is probably because you're very secure in what you're doing yourself. Yeah. Just if you think that's true. Oh, mm, sure. Um, I, I think I've... I suppose if I'm happy for you to go and get a black belt somewhere else, I'm, I'm pretty secure in what I'm doing. Yeah. And here I am now, still talking to you. I say, yeah, we're, we're still here. We, like I said, we, we trained um, a couple of hours ago, which is... Okay, so at the moment, you're, you're running classes, you're, you're teaching a very practical karate. Is this something you'd like to do full-time? Yeah, I have a day job, and uh, you, you do wonder if... Uh, uh, just at this moment in time, my classes aren't big enough to make a living out of it. And if it was, I wouldn't have any issue with it. But uh, hmm, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, you need a nice balance of, uh, you need security in the uh, the income that's coming in. Obviously, I've got, I've got mortgage to pay and family to um, feed and everything. And on the night time, I like to do my, uh, my, my teaching. Uh, it doesn't always make as much money as you'd want. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Do you think you should be, uh, if you're passionate enough about this, should you be a full-time martial artist? No, I think it's a really interesting question, and I, I think the, there are two answers which I hear, which I, I don't think they they solve the problem. One is you should just go for it. I'll try and talk about that in a second. And then, then the other one is 
no, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. They're usually people who, who love you and want the best for you. So they want you to be secure. So, so, so they see martial arts not as a viable career option. And then there are those people who um, have their heads in the clouds and say, yeah, yeah, go for it. And I think the answer lies somewhere in between. And, and for me, it's about balance. So the moment I enjoy my job and the time I spend in my day job, and I enjoy the amount of teaching I do for my, for my martial arts, and the moment my balance is right. You need big classes if you want to do it for a living, uh, unless you've got another model that makes money. Um, if you do lots of seminars and so on, you, or write books and things, you can, you can obviously make some income that way. Uh, but big classes, well, the thing is with big classes, they're not like a restaurant. If your restaurant's full of people, you think uh, that's a great restaurant, but I've noticed that really good classes aren't necessarily full of people. Um, maybe because they're, they're, they're working a bit harder than normal. Uh, and, th- and those groups that do have huge classics, uh, uh, they're not really doing the same sort of things that we're doing. You know, I think it's not necessarily the size of the class, but I think it's the instructor to student ratio, which is the fact that if you've got four, obviously if you've got four instructors under you, you can have a bigger class where you can have people, you know, working hard. Um, I think you're thinking more of the, you know, there's one student, sorry, one instructor yeah, one for 50 student. kids. Well, uh, or right away, you can work out where KKK come from because if you've got 60 kids in front of you, it's, it's easy to go each knee sound and get them kicking. Um, and, and, and there's the basis for that class. It's very difficult to get them grappling each other and, and, and keeping tabs on what's going on. But I'm finding my classes are growing. It, it, it's becoming the state where the, uh, the industry is accepting what we're doing more and more. It was very alien 10 years ago. I'm hearing uh, some very mainstream people telling me that Kata works in close these days, which is something that Ian was talking about many years ago. And, and uh, I, I'm seeing it on websites and all sorts of blogs and things recently. And, and good, great. Uh, that message is getting through and that's fine. If we go back to your your classes now then. So and a thing we haven't spoke about, which I know you've included, is, is pad work into your, into your training. I, I remember back when um, I started, we, we never really hit pads um, can you tell me when that came about and what value do you see in that and, and why you think it's um, an important part of the classes? Well, it's huge. It's one of those things that you think, well, how can you learn to hit something unless something is there to hit? Yeah, and sure. It seems a really obvious thing now, but at, at that time, it was uh, punching air seemed to be uh, good enough. The three Ps of karate, as I call them, you got your, your punching air, your performance dance and playing tag. And I think that's a really brutal way to explain the kind of karate, essentially, um, yeah. we used to do. Well, how much fun is it to get a pan out and hit it? Oh, it, it, it's, it's tremendous fun, yeah. Um, it's, we, it's one of my favorite things to do in class. And it's you, you, the benefits of it are incredible. Not only are you learning, you know, to, to hit hard, um, to, you know, hit fast, you get your technique down on the pads, um, stress relief. You can use your techniques, techniques in the kata, elbows, knees, you know, headbutts, things like that, you can actually use on, on pads. Yeah, you can develop a drill. You can, you can have a nice cat-based uh, uh, drill and you can just insert pads here and just hit them. It's just, it's just a lovely touch. It keeps your training fresh as well. You can just, the same training done slightly differently and the student doesn't even know that it's done slightly differently. What I like to do in my classes is just that actually. So we'll do a kihon, a solo drill. So say it's say like the one we did today, which is a gary a knee, with two roundhouse elbows. And then they practice their kata. So we did you know, or Pinan Yondan today, which has you know, your knees and elbows in. And then I had them hit pads with knees and elbows. 
and then we sparred where you were restricted to only you know kneeing and elbowing. Yeah, it's great the way Kata works there. It's like, I think a Yondan straight away is um, head, elbows, knees. And that's what we've grown up as uh, close quarters combat. Mm. Um, in the day of the Kata, I'm guessing there wasn't any pads there to hit like we have now, but it just seems an obvious approach to it. Mm. Why wouldn't you? And if there's any groups out there not hitting pads, you've got to ask stuff, why not? It's, it's probably more of an investment thing. They just want to invest the time and the money just to buy the things so that the student can, can experiment with it. And I think it's uh, one thing which happened with me is because I, I did a lot of like, you know, we did a lot of competitions karate for, for, for a while. And before we go into the practical stuff is you start developing techniques, which look good for show rather than for, you know, making someone else not look good. Yeah. I don't really have any set patterns for these past things. We, we tend to go in quite organic and go, <laughs> hit this and you, and you hit it. Well, what do you think of that, by the way? Because I know we have, I think we have different views on this. Is I, I'm quite linear in my approach to to training and grading, whereas you're a lot more flexible. A lot of karate people are very used to set drills and, and linear drilling, and you don't do yeah, that in your karate. I've been through a process there. At one point, my syllabus looked like it was uh, it was just a huge piece of paper with all kinds of things written on it. But, but, but since then, I've realized that the, the, the cutter itself is a syllabus all by itself, and you can make a lot of progress with that. Uh, so no, we, we do do some drills. I mean, one, one thing, I mean, I have set drills for my class just so I make sure I cover each aspect I want to cover. But except for them, I mean, the other drills I teach, um, they, they'll change and they'll adapt. And we might do one drill once which covers certain concepts or um, techniques, which, yeah, we, course, won't, yeah. you, you which we won't just, do again. You can't just tell them nothing. You, you, you can't just say, off you go, young man, go and find your own techniques. So you've got to give them a set. Yeah. Uh, a set of rules, cause if you like. Could you imagine telling a kid to express themselves <laughs> and attack or something like that without showing them cause? No. So, yeah, you've you got to give them, well, you've got to show them what the cat is about. So, it's, uh, the, show them what the move does. And uh, and then say, well, suppose you've got Hen Show down there and you, you show them six lessons involved with, with, with that cat. So, during those six lessons, I will then say, you and you get together and you will spar. I want you to show me six lessons during your sparring, mm. but it's completely random. They are punching and kicking and biting and scrapping in their own way, but uh, eventually what will pop out is uh, one of the techniques you show them. And, yeah. and that's that's the organic sort of nature that I'm interested in now. Mm. It's, it's a million miles away from Nippon Kumuso, which, again, if you value it, that's, that's fine, but uh, I, I get much more benefit from this method. Yeah. It reminds me of a, of a, I think it's a Bruce Lee quote where uh, when I first heard this, I, I, I didn't get it at all. And I'm starting to understand it now, which was once you learn a drill, you should forget the drill. And at the time I, oh, yeah. I was thinking, well, what, what's the point of learning it if oh, you're yeah. going to forget it straight I was, away? I'm just going to write that down so I can use that for my next. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, well, yeah, why not? You know, um, at the end of the day, you're trying to teach the students what to do and when to do it yeah. when they need it. Um, um, if you find Nippon Kimite or something similar, the, the way forward, or any of its derivatives, uh, 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 yeah. I think you mentioned it earlier. I think one one of the things I removed Nippon Kimite for was because everything it can do, I think you can do better in other forms of training. Yeah. Um, right. The only reason I can see being kept in um, for people who want to be practical is. For an historical value, this is what they used well, to do during this time. Well, there's some damaging photos in Karate Joe Kohan, he, he, even the 1930 version mm. I've got. Yeah, yeah. Really good book. Um, 
but some of the photos on there look just like Iponku. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and, and speaking of like historical value, this is a question I wanted to just chat with you regarding is, I think there are a lot of dangerous stuff in Kata. What do you think about teaching them in today's society with our laws? Do you think it's right to teach? It's fine to teach as long as the student realises its limitations and, and, and when and where you should use them. In terms of books you have on your shelf, I know you've got a big martial art library. Is there anything from the... <laughs> You've got a big martial art it's, library. It's probably as nearly as big as yours, maybe. Yeah. Well, just about. Yeah. Half a shelf. It's <laughs> <laughs> all DVDs for you. Yeah. Any, anything interesting or any... any? through DVDs. I like Nakayama's book. I use Nakayama's book as a, like a guide for your basics. Mm. Uh, That's the... Uh, dynamic karate? Karate, yeah. I think you've all seen a copy of that somewhere. But I, I like the pictures and I like the way that it flows. And it, it, if ever I want to sort of go back and if my basics are looking a bit rough, then uh, I, I look at that book there and, and say, yeah, that, that's how I, I like to, that's why I like to see karate. It's all right being practical and all this, but I do appreciate the, the guys that do all their... Yeah, especially because they're hard, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if I could look like that, of course I would, you know, and, and, and why not? And I think that's actually a, um, a misconception of us practical guys, that we don't appreciate um, the athleticism and the hard work these guys have put in to, to make their catters yeah. look as, as good as they do. They're, they're superb athletes. Mm. Look at a catter differently. Yeah. If, if they got up and did my style of application to try and win a world championship, I think they'll be sadly lacking. Mm. I don't think they'll win anything. <laughs> it needs to be, it needs to, they need to keep doing what they're doing. But it's, for me, it's a different world anyway. One thing I really am is comfortable while I'm teaching. You have to be comfortable. It, it, I, I may have had bigger classes if I was in the KKK system. Uh, yeah. I had a competition squad or something going out there, which, which I've had had in the past. And, and you sort of did quite well, didn't you? You placed nationally. You and Roddy. And uh, are, are we able to talk about individual names? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Roddy, Hannah, you've all done quite well, and they're proud of you for that as well. It's always nice that you um, you, you can always stand up and, and do a, a good catter and, and put up a good spa, even the, the WKF, which I don't really do much of anymore. You can still hold your own. Uh, yeah. It's always nice to see that. I mean, with regards to competition catter, I, I always enjoyed it um, when I was doing it. But I, I think, and I think this is one of the really good things about practical karate, is I think that traditional karate or the sport karate has a shelf life. I mean, I was about mm. 21, 22. And I realized uh, I wasn't doing as well as I was when I was like 18, 19, just because I wasn't as young or as you know, fit or, or as fast as, as the young guys coming through. And same with the Kumite, really. And I, I think by the time you get to like 30, 40, I think your chances of, of, of competing and probably enjoying karate as much as you, as you did when you are younger yeah, change. You can still compete, of course you can, but you're in your own category and things. But, yeah. but it is good fun, you know. Uh, I just wondered if you want to throw a few names out there of people you've trained with in the past who you, who you think are... Oh, he is a big one, obviously, because, yeah. you know, all of his books and all of his DVDs, and whenever he's around to try and get one of his uh, seminars and things. There's a guy in Birmingham, though, who's a really, really nice guy called Eugene Covington. And I, I, he wouldn't know me because I just went to a couple of his lessons, but he, he shows some things. I yeah. thought that Jesus, guy right? really knowledgeable. Yeah, he, he has a way about it that made me think of uh, meeting an actual live Jesus. <laughs> oh, I hope I haven't offended anyone there. You <laughs> oh. had no idea who I was. Just the overall knowledge he had was enough for me to... I couldn't really train with him four times, just lived in different places, mm. but um, I think I would have. If I live close by, I'll, I'll go see him uh, many times over. 
Uh, anyone the BCKA, because obviously all the like-minded people tend to go in the same places. Um, your man Mick Tully, he's a good guy, isn't he? And um, very welcoming and stuff. And you took me to one of his seminars, did you not? I did, I did. And did you not? You never thought of showing me anything to do with uh, what they call Heaven Six. Yeah, well, I thought you had Heaven Six on by that no, day. No, I didn't. I've never seen it. <laughs> so I didn't know. That, that was the warm up drill. Yeah, that, that was that was like two minutes into the seminar. Let's warm up with this. Yeah, warm up with this, and you have me there standing there, have no clue. <laughs> I look like an octopus with uh, all these uh-huh. arms and tentacles yeah. flying everywhere. It was back to sequence one at Kanazawa, right? Yeah, it's well, the same kind yeah. of situation. That happens quite a lot with me. <laughs> Okay, so I'm getting a note on my computer to say we're running out of time. So, Mike, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Just to remind you, you can still get tickets for my seminar with Ian Abernethy on the 25th of March. Details are in the show notes. You can also head over to my website, www.leesims.com, or find me on Facebook, which will be Lee Sims Progressive Karate. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and give it a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, train smart and have fun. Mm-hmm.